This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. To date, COVID-19 has caused millions of infections around the world and over 120,000 deaths. The US, Spain, Italy, France and the UK are the most affected countries. The outbreak has generated lots of questions on the disease itself, but also on things like personal protective equipment, frailty and silent hypoxia. To tell us what the guidelines say about these problems, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castleton, GP and clinical editor in the BMJ Knowledge Centre, and Dr. Abigail Davis, section editor in the BMJ Knowledge Centre. So to start with Matt, Matt, tell us about the guidelines on PPE. What do they say about when it should be worn? Well, the UK guidelines on PPE, uh, in theory, are now uh, more straightforward than they have been. The latest iteration of the guidance from Public Health England, together uh, in conjunction with the devolved administrations, now recognises that we are in a phase sustained community transmission of COVID-19 throughout the whole of the UK. So this means that in any setting involving patient contact, either primary or secondary care, there's a presumption that healthcare workers are going to be using personal protective equipment or PPE. Uh, and essentially everyone is being treated as a possible case, regardless of whether they're showing symptoms or not. Staff can carry out a local risk assessment and some of the guidance is still talking about whether to use eye protection or to change surgical masks between individual patients or whether to use them in a session of, of, of patient care, seeing several patients together um, and the same goes for eye protection. But the underlying message is that PPE should be used for all patients in all settings in the current phase of the pandemic. Thank you. And, and what types of PPE should be used in, in primary care, for example? The main distinction um, in what type of PPE to use is between aerosol generating procedures, uh, which obviously occurs in, in, in some hospital settings, and everywhere else, including primary care. The aerosol generating procedures are things like intubating patients, uh, providing uh, ventilation, uh, and that includes non-invasive ventilation, such as CPAP or high-flow nasal oxygen. That occurs regularly in critical care units, in the resource areas of, of emergency departments, in operating theatres, and that's the higher level of, of PPE, where people need to be wearing full-length gowns, um, they need to be wearing full respirators, which are fit-tested. These are the FFP3 respirators, um, eye protection visors and gloves, of course. Everywhere else, including primary care, it's a disposable plastic apron, a fluid-resistant surgical mask, eye protection of some kind, ideally, and, of course, gloves. Okay, thank you. And there's been some talk over the last couple of days about reusing personal protective equipment. Do the guidelines have anything to say about that, I wonder? At the moment, there's nothing specific in the published PHE guidance. 
there is mention of a, a sort of lower form of respirator, the FFP2 respirators, which didn't appear in the earlier guidance, but there are certain situations where they might be used. As of yet, there's nothing published on the Public Health England website about you know, washing or reusing equipment, but whether that's in development or not, I, I don't know. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move on to a, a different but important topic, um, a clinical frailty scoring, which we've been uh, reading a lot about recently, and it's mentioned specifically in the NICE guidelines on COVID-19. Tell us about clinical frailty scoring. Well, the purpose of clinical frailty scoring is to identify patients at increased risk of poor outcomes uh, who may not benefit from critical care. The idea is that you ascertain from the patient or carer what that individual could do two weeks prior to an acute admission. So this normally takes place on admission to the emergency department find out how active they were, how well they could look after themselves, get an idea of any pre-existing medical conditions, and they're then graded on a score of one to nine. And evidence collected, obviously, before the COVID-19 outbreak suggested that this score correlates very well with, with outcomes, eventual outcomes of people admitted acutely to hospital, but only in people over the age of 65. And uh, it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all uh, in terms of making decisions about admitting patients to critical care. It's very much something to help inform discussions and decisions. A full holistic assessment is still needed, involving discussion with patients and family. But it's a tool that can be used, and it's very useful if people have done a, a, a clinical frailty assessment on admission, down the line, you know, if in a few days' time these difficult decisions have to be made, if that score was, was carried out at the time of admission, then it can be very helpful in that situation. Okay, thank you. And, and what type of things does it look at? What are the kind of criteria with, within uh, the clinical frailty scale? Well, for example, the NICE guidelines suggests a, a, a cutoff of, of under five. The presumption would be that that patient would be referred to critical care if initial management wasn't successful. Uh, and five is defined as being mildly frail. So people may need help with some of their activities, uh, but they can still leave the house, they can shop, they can walk outside alone, they can prepare their meals and do some housework, but they might need a bit of assess a bit of help with heavy housework or some tasks. Six is moderately frail, so people would need help with going outside the house. They would need help with all of the housework. Uh, they might have difficulty with spares. They would need help with bathing. So it's around that sort of threshold where where you need to sort of look quite closely at what people can and can't do. Okay, thank you. But uh, it's fair to say it's a, it's a it's 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 guidance. It's not an absolute yes or no. Very much so, and people with a score of five or greater uh, are not being excluded from critical care. Yeah, that's a key a key element of the guidance. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's move on to another issue: the issue of of silent hypoxia, which has been mentioned a lot in the literature. Um, what is silent hypoxia, and what do the papers say about it? 
I'm not sure it's mentioned a lot in the literature, but it's something that that anecdotally clinicians in the hospital environment are finding is that patients with COVID-19 often have very low oxygen saturations or, or low oxygen saturations, but without the symptoms of breathlessness or, or respiratory distress that you might expect in other conditions. Uh, and as you say, this has been noted and papers have been published from clinicians in Wuhan in China. A key part of this is that the, the, the early warning scores, the NEWS2 score that we use in the UK, for example, may not be effective after the initial phase of deterioration. The Royal College of Physicians have actually recognised this yesterday. There can be deterioration occurring within a certain new score that's not recognised once the initial deterioration has taken place. So it's called silent hypoxia. Oxygen saturations can be very low. It can in indicate incipient respiratory failure. But the surprising thing is that patients don't seem to be very aware of this. They can be chatting on the phone. As yet, uh, you know, I don't think anyone understands the physiological basis for this, so it's very much an emerging phenomenon, um, but it does seem to be a real thing. Okay, thank you. And what are the implications for clinical practice? Is it to have a low threshold to do pulse oximetry in patients with uh, COVID-19 infection? I think one of the, the, the key things, and I believe the Royal College of Physicians have acknowledged this uh, in, in what they said yesterday, is that you look for an increasing oxygen requirement. Um, so if the oxygen saturations are, are stable, but you're noticing that, that you know, nursing staff and doctors are having to increase an oxygen requirement to maintain those oxygen saturations, again, even with a patient who seems to be relatively well in themselves, that should be a bit of a warning sign. Um, so that's come out with the RCP. Uh, but basically, at the moment, it's something to be aware of. And as you say, to keep a, a, a close eye. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. That's really helpful. Um, now, let's move on to Abigail. Um, Abigail, there are recently released guidelines on managing suspected or confirmed pneumonia in adults in the community. What are the key differences in these guidelines from normal practice? Well, there's some really useful information in the NICE guidelines about how to distinguish between a bacterial pneumonia and a COVID pneumonia clinically. So, of course, contact with a known or suspected case of COVID-19 makes that infection more likely. Um, but there are other clues as well. And one is in the timing. So people with COVID are typically ill for about a week before presenting with pneumonia, whereas people with bacterial pneumonia tend to become rapidly unwell after a few days of symptoms. And the associated symptoms are different too. So severe myalgia, anosmia and breathlessness without pleuritic pain um, support a diagnosis of COVID pneumonia while purulent sputum and the presence of pleuritic pain, that's more typical of a bacterial pneumonia. Um, the NICE guidelines also remind us that most clinicians will be assessing most patients remotely. So your usual physical exam, listening for crackles won't be possible. Um, but you can still gather a lot of useful information on respiratory rate, heart rate, mental status or confusion, and possibly also temperature, and you can use that to inform your decision-making. 
Um, it's important to say that the CRB65 score, which is so useful for assessing severity of pneumonia in normal circumstances, hasn't been validated in patients with COVID-19. Um, so it's not recommended for use in that population. What NICE recommends is that you assess the need for hospital admission based on the patient's clinical symptoms and signs. So degree of breathlessness, any hemoptysis, any evidence of cyanosis, cool or clammy skin, new confusion, those sorts of things. Now, if COVID is the likely cause of the pneumonia and the patient's symptoms are mild, you don't need to give antibiotics because, of course, they won't be effective against a viral pneumonia. Antibiotics can be offered to patients if you suspect it's a bacterial pneumonia or if there's doubt about whether it's viral or bacterial or if a patient is at higher risk of complications, for example, because they are older or more frail, um, because they have COPD or another underlying condition, or because they're immunosuppressed. Okay, thank you very much, Abigail, for that comprehensive answer. And, and thanks to you, Matt, also, and, and to everybody for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.